Right. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Today we are in Psalm 139, and we are beginning in verse 7. And while you're turning there, and before we start there, I do want to address a question um, that has been raised to me a couple times within the last couple weeks, and that is regarding what's going on in Israel and its relationship to the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Specifically, does the violence in Israel signify and show us that Christ is coming soon? And I'll give you Michelle's favorite answer to that, yes and no. Um, Why do I say yes and no? Well, I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 24 real quickly as Jesus has told the, the disciples that the that the temple will be destroyed and it will be falling down. And they ask him, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming of the end of the age? And he says in Matthew 24, verse 4, he says, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. And we know from Ezekiel as well that that things have been prophesied, that the armies will come from the north against the nation of Israel. Um, and many times we look at those things and we think, hallelujah, Jesus is coming soon. Well, Jesus says here that when you hear wars and rumors of wars, are there any wars going on in our world right now? Yeah. Kind of all over the place, are they not? Well, he also talks about earthquakes. There were three earthquakes this week in Afghanistan. Pestilence. I don't need to talk about pestilence. The last three years have been difficult. And he talks about all of these things, and he says all of these things are but the beginning. They are birth pains. And so what do these things tell us? These things tell us that time is ripe for Jesus to return. But they are birth pains of Jesus' returns. What happens when a woman goes into labor? It starts out, and I'm going to say this as a man, I understand that. It starts out relatively easy, and then it gets hard, and it cycles, and it gets harder and harder and harder until that baby is finally born. We see that in the structure of Revelation and the visions in Revelation. Each one shows the history of the world, and each one gets more intense and more difficult. And so what we learn from that is from the time Jesus went back to heaven until the time that Jesus returns, there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be persecution, he goes on to say in verse 9. There will be pestilence, there will be famines, there will be earthquakes in various places. But all of these things will cycle through like a woman in labor. They will intensify and repeat until Jesus does finally come back again. This is not the first offensive and attack in Israel. It will not be the last until Jesus returns. And so when we see these things happening, yes, 
These are signs of the end of the world. They just may not be signs that meet, that tell us that it is imminent, going to happen within the next few weeks, days, or months. But that reminds us of another truth. I was reminded Wednesday night in prayer meeting. That reminds us of another truth. Acts chapter 1, Jesus is asked by the disciples, when will you come back in the fullness of glory? Jesus says, that's not for you to know. Only the Father knows. But here's what you are to be concerned about. The Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, Jesus says, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Does this particular attack on Israel signify that Jesus will be here soon? Honestly, I don't know. That's above my pay grade, Jesus tells me. And yet, what he does tell me I need to be concerned about is, does my neighbor know Jesus? Does the person who has never had an opportunity to hear the gospel around the world, as I have opportunity to serve them or don't, have they heard about Jesus? We need to be about that spirit-empowered work. Yes, pay attention to the news. Yes, pray for Israel. My goodness, close to 4,000 people have died in the last week in Israel. That should break our hearts just a little bit. Pray as well that Christians in Israel may have opportunity to share the gospel. Christians in Palestine may have opportunity to share the gospel. We get so utterly consumed over what's going on with eschatology, we forget that our neighbors need Jesus. And so let us keep that in mind as we ask and seek answers to these questions. Turning back to our scripture from Psalm 139 and our study of the attributes of God, we begin in verse 7 of Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is, a, is as light to you. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we know that you are the everywhere present, the infinitely present God. We know that you are present here with us, and we know that you are present in every point in creation. That includes the Ukraine, that includes Israel. And so, Lord, we ask that your presence would show your glory, even in the midst of those places where war is tearing it up. And we ask that you would comfort and convict us here in this place with the truth, with the knowledge that you are always near. As we study your everywhere presence today, help us to find comfort in you and to worship you in a way that brings you honor and brings you glory. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the fourth question asks, what is God? And the answer comes to us from the Westminster Divines. It says, God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. 
in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and his truth. We've talked about God's spirit and his holiness. We, we are going to talk about his wisdom, his power, his justice, his goodness, and his truth. But we will not deal directly with the truth that God is both infinite and eternal as well. We will deal with these indirectly this week and the next two weeks as we look at the omnis, the omnipresence, the omni omniscience, the omnipotence of God. We will look at how God is not bound in his presence, in his knowledge, or in his power by either time or space, which is what the, the Westminster talks about when it says that God is infinite and eternal. You and I are bound by space. You and I are bound by time. And God is infinite and eternal in his relationship to time and to space. And so that is what we will begin to look at as we look at the fact that God is everywhere present. Psalm 139, David points us to the truth, to the comforting and convicting truth that God is everywhere present. What does it mean for God to be everywhere present? And what comfort or conviction does this truth bring to humanity, both fallen and redeemed? Those are the questions we will look into today. First, God is everywhere present. Now, what do we mean when we say that God is everywhere present? Look with me once again at verses 7 through 10 of Psalm 139. David here is talking about where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And he gives us kind of the, the four points of the compass answer to this. Um, north, south, east, and west, or up, down, left, and right, if you will. He starts out in verse 8. He says, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. In Hebrew thought of David's time, the, the heaven, if, if they used the word heaven, it wasn't typically what we think of today. It was just any point that was high and, and above the earth. And so he puts it in the plural there, however, to kind of intensify the meanings there. He says, if I go up to the highest of heavens or the heaven of heavens, he says that you are there. What he is saying here is that if he could go to the highest point possible, that a human could go, and even further and even higher above the earth, seeking to flee from God, speaking, seeking to flee from God's presence. David said, I would, I would be found by God and I would find that God is already there. The Apostle John echoes this truth for us in Revelation chapter 4. After receiving those opening letters to the seven churches, his, his revelation continues as he is invited into the throne room of God and he sees God's throne high and lifted up above all of creation, above all of the created order. He sees God over and above creation and yet also sovereign in creation. The scene from Revelation 4 reminds us of the, that God, while everywhere present, is also distinct from creation. And we'll cover this a little bit 
more later as we look at some dangers that we must avoid as we, as we consider God's everywhere presence. But we need to keep this in mind that even though God is everywhere present within creation, he is also distinct or different from creation. So we see it to the north or up as he says, if I go to the heavens, you are there. And we also see it to the south or to the lowest depths in the second half of verse 8 where he says, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. That word depths is the Hebrew word sheol, which also means the grave or the realm of the dead. To continue the Hebrew view of the created order or the cosmos, they felt that the earth rested upon the foundation of the mountains. And if you went deep enough and found the bottom of the foundations of the mountains, there would be a gate that opened up to the realm of the dead. If we were to look at Jonah chapter 2 and his poem, his prayer to God, he, he gives us this imagery as he talks about descending from Israel. He goes down from Israel. He goes down to the port. He goes down in the, into the ocean. He goes down to the bottom of the mountains, and there he sees a gate. And just like Jonah, David comes to the realization that even if I could go to the deepest depths of this world, I would find that God was already there. David goes on to say, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, where does the sun rise? The sun rises in the east. So we've had north or up. We've had south or down. And now he is saying, if I could go absolutely as far east as I possibly could, would God already be there when David got there? Absolutely. And then he says, if I settle on the far side of the sea, what sea would David have been talking about here? Well, for Israel, the sea that he would have been talking about would have been the Mediterranean Sea. And if you're standing in Israel, what direction is the Mediterranean Sea from anywhere in Israel? It's to the west, yes. And so David says that if I could go to the highest of heights, to the deepest of depths, if I could go infinitely to the east or infinitely to the west, I would find that God is already there. And he has been there from the foundation, from the creation of the cosmos, of all of the created order. And not only, this is a poetic tool that David is using, he's not only saying at this point at the highest point or this point at the lowest depth or this point in the east or this point in the west, I'll find God. But in saying that God is in those places, he is also saying that God is at absolutely every point in between. This is a poetic device that says, consider all these extremes when it comes to direction and understand that when we consider these extremes, we are also considering every single point in between. And so in our world, we would say from the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of the Mariana, Mariana Trench, God is there. From the rising to the setting of the sun, God is there. David and we are saying today that every, anywhere that David could go or that you could go or that I could go is full already of the everywhere presence of God. 
And this is the truth that we call the omnipresence of God. That word omni is a Latin word that means all or every. And so when we say that God is omnipresent, we are literally saying that he is fully and perfectly present everywhere within the created order. Now, as we consider the omnipresence of God, there are a few things, a few dangers that we need to be aware of when we do talk of God's omnipresence. The first thing that we need to be aware of is the heresy of pantheism. Pantheism is not only the statement that God is in everything, but that everything is God. There's a a Hindu parable where a, a wise man is walking through the countryside and every time he passes a tree, he knocks on the trunk of the tree and he says, God, are you there? Hindus and Buddhists believe that not only is their God everywhere, but everything within creation is also God. That's why I said earlier, we need to keep in mind that even though God is everywhere within creation, he is distinct from creation. You are not divine. I am not divine. The trees, the mountains, the waters, the animals, nothing is divine. We are all created things distinct from God and God is distinct from us. Theologian Herman Bovink stated in his Reformed Dogmatics that it would be better for us to say that God is side by side with creation rather than saying that God is everywhere in creation. So we need to avoid pantheism. Secondly, we also need to be cautious of dividing God into parts by saying that God is just this really huge being that kind of covers everything so that a little bit, a little piece of him is in every place in creation. We actually see one manifestation of this in the deism of the 18th and 19th centuries. Deists proclaimed and believed, and most of our founding fathers were deists, Deists believe that God in his person sits above creation upon his throne and that it's only his impersonal power that's at work with, or present within creation holding things together. God cannot be divided. This is the doctrine of the simplicity of God. God cannot be broken up into parts. And so when we say that God is omnipresent, what we are saying is that God is perfectly present in the entirety and the fullness of his being at every point within the creation, in, above, beneath, and around his creation. We also need to be aware that even though God is everywhere present, he is not dependent upon creation for his existence. We, we talked about this in the aseity or self-sufficiency of God. All of creation could disappear in a moment and it would not affect the person or the fullness of God in his being. And the last danger I want us to look at, which will take a few moments to a little bit longer to consider, is the fact that God is not absent anywhere in creation, and that includes hell. Over the last several years, I have seen calls for people to repent and to believe because the danger of being separated from God in hell. 
Some people even go so far as to say that hell is the separation from the presence of God. God is omnipresent. God is in all created places. And hell is a created place. Revelation 14.10 describes the souls condemned to hell and receiving the full measure of the wrath of God for their sins. And in this description, we are told that the Lamb, the second person of the Trinity, is at minimum witnessing this. According to other scriptures, the Lamb is the one that is pouring out the punishment, the wrath of God upon the wicked in hell. Now, some people appeal to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, which says this, They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. They look at that statement there that they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and say, see, God will not be there in heaven. That word presence of the Lord in that particular uh, passage is linked to the Aaronic benediction of Numbers chapter 6, which says the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord turn his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's a very similar construction to what we just read in 2 Thessalonians 9. Why is that important? Well, in that blessing that God gave to Aaron to give to the people of Israel, the idea of God's face or countenance shining upon you is the idea of God looking upon you with favor. And God looks at this point in, in history, God looks at all creation with a level of favor. Now, for the children of God, it is a higher level of favor in Christ because we are holy and chosen and beloved. But for the wicked, those who have rejected the gospel and are still alive in this earth today, the favor of God comes in his common grace. They still stand before a God who will judge their sin. But for right now, he pulls that judgment back and they feel the sun shining upon them and the blessing that that brings in this world. But there will come a day when that comfort and joy and favor of God's face shining upon them in his common grace will be removed from them. And he will turn his face from them and they will feel the full weight of God's wrath and God's judgment of sin without the mitigation of his common grace. The author of Hebrews says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And so God will be perfectly present in hell. God is everywhere present in creation while also maintaining his distinction from creation. So God is everywhere present and you and I are to feel the comfort and conviction of that truth. First, the conviction. The first six verses of Psalm 139 and the last two of the passage that we read today are closely related, and we'll look at the first six verses next week. But if we look at verses 9, beginning in verse 9, it says, If I rise, verse 10, excuse me, 
11. Bear with me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. How many sins are committed with the assumption that, you know what, this is my sin. Nobody sees it. Nobody knows it. So I can get away with this. You and I may be getting away with, or at least think we're getting away with a lot of sins because nobody else sees them. We may be in the darkness of our home while everybody else has gone to bed on our phones, on our computers, looking at things that we shouldn't look at. We may be in the privacy of our office thinking, man, not even the IRS is going to figure out the things that I am doing today. And it's my money anyway. I deserve it. Whatever it is, we think that we are alone in our sins. But that's not true. The omnipresent, everywhere present God is always there. You cannot go to the highest of heights. You cannot go to the deepest of depths. You cannot go infinitely to the east or infinitely to the west and run and hide from God. This is convicting for those who have never embraced the gospel of Christ. It should remind them that nothing they do in rebellion against him will be overlooked by God because he cannot overlook it. For the Christian, it is also convicting because we claim to worship the everywhere present God and yet sin and act like we like he is not there. For the Christian, this conviction should drive us to the comfort of God's omnipresence. Hebrews 13:5 says, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 23, 4, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Joshua 1, 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And from Matthew 28, 20, which we read earlier today, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Keith Kaufman in his article on God's omnipresence puts it this way. When the child of God cries out in desperation to God, he will never hear God say, I'm stuck in traffic. Because God is with you wherever you go. We talked a little bit about, um, in Sunday school today, we talked a little bit about the fact that sometimes God does remove the feeling of his presence from his people. And yet God is still there. God is always there to hear our cries, to hear our sobbings, to hear our fears and our joys, our successes. The Psalms are full of men who went to God saying, God's life is hard and I don't know where you are. Why have you removed your presence from me? 
And yet they went to him knowing that he was there, knowing that he was a promise-keeping God who says over and over and over again throughout scriptures, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even in the darkest of darkness, in the lowest of lows, in those pits of despair where the psalmist says, darkness is my only friend, God is there lovingly showing his favor upon his people. We are called to live in the conviction and comfort of the truth that God is everywhere present. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You may be asking, Ike, you just told me that God is everywhere present. He is always near me. Why would you then command me through James to, to draw near to God. How can I draw near to God? He is always with me. Augustine says it this way. He says, to draw near to God is to become like him. To move away from God is to become unlike him. Drawing near to God is not a matter of moving from one space to another physically. Drawing near to God is a matter of repentance and belief You may be sitting here today confronted and convicted with the truth that God is near you. This conviction may be coming to you because you have never sought to draw near to God. In fact, you have doing you have been doing your very best to do the impossible and to run away from God. If this is you and you are facing the conviction of God's presence, draw near to him through repentance and belief. Stop running, turn around, and flee toward him by taking the path of Jesus' cross. Jesus was rejected by God, separated from God, so that you and I could draw near to him. He became sin. He took the punishment for your rebellion and running away, the fullness of God's unmitigated wrath and judgment, so that you and I could draw near in repentance and belief. Renounce your rebellion. Seek peace in the only place where it can be found, in the cross of the one forsaken so that you may draw near. Or maybe you are a child of God who feels the comfort of God's presence and yet at the same time conviction for sin and idols that you have not yet relinquished. I say as well to you, draw near to God through repentance and belief. Your sins and your idols were destroyed at the cross. By the Spirit, you have been given a heart that is drawn to God. Flee your sin and throw yourself on the strength and mercy of the cross that has demolished your idols. Through repentance and belief, find the comfort of knowing that God is here, everywhere present with you and all of creation. Let us pray. To the great God above, we do thank you for this truth that you are omnipresent, that you are fully and perfectly present at every point in creation. Help us to live in the joy and the glory, the conviction of that truth. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As you go this week, take this blessing upon you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance upon you and give you peace. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, amen. 
We hope you have enjoyed this sermon from Fairly Associate Reform Presbyterian Church. To find out more about our church and its ministries, please find us on Facebook or visit us at www.arpchurchfairly.org. That's www.arpchurchfairly.org. Have a blessed day.